at 4.31 a.m. on January 17, 1994, and 6.7 magnitude earthquake struck Los Angeles to San Fernando Valley. The severe shaking woke up residents who discovered that power had gone out across the city. Many people stepped outside to check on their houses or check on their neighbors' well-being. Some of those looked up in the sky. Some of those who looked up into the sky dialed 911. They were alarmed by a giant silvery cloud that had suddenly appeared over the city. What was this? Was this some kind of ghostly, cosmic effect of the earthquake? What was this giant shape across the entire sky that they'd never seen before? Not to worry, the 911 respondents referred them to the Milky Way. That galaxy that human beings once knew so well until artificial electric lights had erased it from the sky over virtually every city and town. Humanly created lights have obscured heaven's lights. You can't see what's actually up there because of the artificial seal of human light that we've built. This morning, we're going to consider Revelation chapters 4 and 5. It's a majestic passage that gives us the key to the whole book of Revelation and in some ways the key to the whole Bible. The whole book of Revelation is like an earthquake that knocks the power out so that you can see what's really up there. Not what's up in the sky, but what's up in heaven. Real reality in God's throne room, and therefore the truest reality that there is. This vision of heaven makes far more of a difference to your life than the Milky Way ever could. What Revelation reveals is ultimate reality. The book of Revelation reveals the purpose of all things, and the destination of all things. So often, our sight of reality is clouded by human creations, humanly devised values, things we've come up with that we then devote ourselves to and sometimes even worship. So many human values and aspirations are like the light pollution from electric lights at night. They keep you from seeing something that has a far Greater grandeur. And whether you see that reality and whether you live in light of it has eternal consequences. Is God real? Is He in charge? Is He worth worshiping and giving your life to? What's wrong with this world and how can it be made right? What's wrong with you? And how can you be made right? This morning's passage reveals the answers. All these questions and more. It's a little bit of context on where we're going to be in the book of Revelation. So far, in the book of Revelation, John has recounted a vision he received of the risen Lord Jesus reigning in majesty and glory. He has recorded Jesus' own messages to send to seven churches throughout Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. Now, in chapters 4 and 5, the work of revealing begins in earnest. Our passage reports a vision. These two chapters tell us what John saw when, guided by the Holy Spirit, he was given a glimpse into God's heavenly throne room. He was given a 
living in heaven? Who's there? What are they doing? Who's at the center? What are they saying? Don't look at heaven. Tell us what you need to see in order to see this world and your life as a really Let's follow along as I read the whole passage. All three chapters, right now. Starts on page 1091 of the Bible 17. Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounding the throne. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones sat twenty-four elders, dressed in white clothes, with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures, covered with eyes in front and in back, were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped. Saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and said, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And I saw at the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. I wept. And wept. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look at it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst.
midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also the living creatures and the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy of the Lamb who was slaughtered, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. What John sees in this passage is what we all most need to see. He sees reality as it is in heaven right now, and as it will one day be in so the question we're going to consider throughout this sermon is, what do you most need to see? Our passage's answer comes in four parts. The main idea is we need to see God as He really is, as the one who is. Let's flesh that out as we go. Specifically, point one, you need to see the one who is delightfully different. Delightfully different. It's here in chapter 1, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, through the first part of verse 6. Let me hit verse 1. After this, I looked, and there in heaven was an open board. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. The voice speaking is Jesus himself, just like in the similar scenario in chapter 1, verse 10. This vision of heaven is the first in a series of visions that are going to last throughout the rest of the book. So when Jesus says to John, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this, he's not saying that the fifth of chapters 4 and 5 is exclusively future. Instead, he's telling John that this whole series of visions is going to be concerned mainly with things that are to come. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. And there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. This throne symbolizes God's absolute authority over all things. Here, God is not named. His appearance is not yet described. Instead, John focuses all our attention on the throne. The opening of this vision answers the question, 
prison jokers. The answer is ultimately God alone. God alone is supreme and sovereign. In modern Western culture, the thing that people most like to do with thrones is knock others off of them. That is how we are culturally wired. That is our deeply rooted stance toward really all claims of authority, but especially claims of absolute authority. Now, there is something right in that skepticism of claims of absolute authority when the one who would claim absolute authority is a finite and fallen human being like us. But God is neither finite nor fallen. It's all too easy to project our own weaknesses and limitations and even sins onto God. What would you do with absolute power? Well, that's not what God would do with absolute power. God's absolute authority is absolutely good. God's absolute reign is absolutely right. That's the point of John's laser focus on the throne. Look now at verses 3 to 6. The one seated there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of gladness, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. John, John compares God's appearance to that of precious stones. Precious stones concentrate and focus light. That's what makes them so beautiful. They take the whole spectrum of light and focus in specific ways that cause brilliant colors to shine out. That's a little bit of what this whole vision is doing with God's own intrinsic beauty and glory. This imagery is, is focusing aspects of His glory so that we can perceive it, so that we can see it with our mind's eye. The rainbow around the throne is a further manifestation of God's glory, and it harkens back to God's promise to Noah that He would never again judge the world by means of a flood. The 24 elders are most likely angels who represent the whole of God's redeemed people. I've got our human secrets and stands for the fullness of God's people, 12 for the old covenant, 12 for the new covenant. Sitting on thrones, enclosed in white, wearing crowns. These are all promises that Christ makes to his people by the chapters 2 and 3. And I symbolize the extended figures here and now. What they are now is what we will be then. They're a picture of a treason of the faith of all God's people who persevere in faith and obedience. The lightning and rumbling and thunder that comes from the throne are manifestations of God's holiness. They remind us of God's revelation of Himself to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. The very same threatening natural phenomena that echo down from Mount Sinai are here in the throne. It's a reminder of God's holiness, a reminder of His intrinsic purity, a reminder that we cannot approach God in our own righteousness because none of us qualify. These threatening natural phenomena remind us that God alone is the lawgiver and judge. One who is able to save and destroy. The seven torches before the throne are said to be the seven spirits of God. 
a similar phrase shows up in chapter 1, and I think we should understand both of the reference to the Holy Spirit. Not that there are seven of the Holy Spirit, but that the number is seven, as so often is the case in Revelation, is symbolic. It symbolizes perfection, completeness. The point of applying this to the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is the light of God Himself. The Holy Spirit is able to illuminate minds, able to reveal any thoughts. You know the last feature of the throne scene in verse 6? Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal was also before the throne. We saw this already in the name Holy, Holy, Holy. What is this scene, and why is it in front of God's throne? To the Hebrews, the scene represented destruction, chaos, disorder, threat. The threat is what they had to cross through in order to get it to freedom. In Isaiah 51, verse 9, the prophet portrays God's work of parting the Red Sea as the destruction of an ancient dragon or serpent. God's victory over forces of evil. In Revelation chapter 13, later on, a beast is going to rise out of the sea to oppose God's people. The sea symbolizes all the forces that reject God and persecute His people. But here, in the heavenly throne, he is perfectly still. It's so calm, John has to grasp around for a word for it. It's like glass. It's like crystal. It's not even a puff of air ruffling the surface of this sea. What does that represent? It represents God's holy sovereignty over and complete mastery of all the forces of nature. Nothing to threaten God's perfect will here. Anything that might threaten you, your physical state, your well-being, your mind, your emotions, your relationships, your stability and security, whatever threats you face or fear, bring them into God's presence and they melt into perfect stillness. If you want perfect security, come and die before God's throne. The overall point of these six verses is to give us a glimpse of God who is delightfully different from us. He's so different from us that we can't possibly comprehend how different he is. One politician is more powerful than another. So many of the lives of the People I serve in Washington, D.C. are spent jockeying for this little bit of power or that little bit of power. One politician is more senior than another. One politician carries this committee. Another one is impervious to being primary. Down the street from where I live, in the congregation where I serve, the House of Representatives, where there are 448 permanent seats on the floor for the members and various other functions. 448 seats there. There's only one from God's power is so different from political power. We can only continue to barely comprehend what it is. God doesn't just differ from creatures. He differs from us differently from how any creatures differ from each other because we're all His creations and He's the Creator. He's differently different. He's transcendent. He's sublime. He's exalted. He's holy. 
God is also delightfully different. He's different than his beauty, and his glory, and his radiance. He is himself the source of all that is beautiful and desirable. It's in these images of precious stones and rainbows are meant to give us this famous impression of how infinitely delightful God is in us. A lot of people who are not Christians and who don't subscribe to any institutional religion still believe in God. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's somewhat about how you describe yourself. You're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you're not an atheist, you're not an agnostic. You would say you believe in God. If that's you, my question to you this morning is, how do you know what God is like? How could you distinguish a true thought about God from a false thought about God? It's always tempting to project both our fallenness and our signature unto God. As if he's just like us, only the God is But God is gloriously unlike us, and thus his beauty and his character. So we can respond to him with desire and delight. Are things like this to stir up our yearnings for God? We should delight in who God is in himself and desire lasting fellowship and communion with him. Once in a while, a new song comes out. It just grabs hold of me. A friend tells me about it, or some algorithm feeds it to me, and some first few bars of hooks, I just put it on a green I just can't get enough of it. I start texting it out to friends to share my musical taste, and I can't get enough of it. In a song like that, it might start with the guitar riff, or the rhythm of the drums, or the, the inflection of the vocalist, or a little ornamentation on the melody, but every single one of those things is, is worthwhile in itself, and beautiful in itself, but then it's also how they all fit together. Every single detail is well done, and the picture that it all adds up to is, is compelling. I know it just draws my heart in it. It hooks me. It stays in my head. The song's beauty grows in my heart. And it keeps me listening. Brothers and sisters, you get a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of the one true God. It's proper effect is to grow into your heart. And it's also you yearn for him. You draw out of yourself in prayer and praise to him. To want to center your life on who he is, knowing him, making him known. The beauty of God we see in a vision like this is meant to hook us. It's meant to keep us coming back in prayer and praise. It's meant to make us yearn for fellowship with him. The fullest extent we can experience it now, and to especially yearn for the full, unhindered, face-to-face fellowship we will have with him in the God is delightfully different. Because he's delightfully different, point two, he is also worthy of worship. Point two, worthy of worship. In verses 6 to 11 of chapter 4, we see how all the creatures in heaven continually worship the one who sits on the throne. These verses teach us that the heavenly elders and living creatures worship God in such degree because of his divine holiness and his creative and preserving power. God alone simply is. God alone is the cause of all that exists. And so God alone is worthy of worship. Look at the rest of verse 6 through verse 7. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. These four creatures represent the whole created order. We have the mightiest wild animal, the strongest domesticated animal. We have a human being, the only rational animal. And we have an eagle, the most majestic flying animal. They're said to be around the throne. And if we read this in the light of Ezekiel 1, I think we're meant to understand that they actually form part of the throne. They are around the throne, and God, as it were, is enthroned above them. The point of these creatures who form God's throne is that God rightly rules over them. And they willingly delight in His supremacy. And they not only delight in God's supremacy, they declare it. Verse 8. Each of the four living creatures has its wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Being like they never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. These living creatures are just like the seraphim that Isaiah saw. He's using the heavenly throne room in Isaiah chapter 6. Not only do they each have its wings, but they all cry out continuously the same call that those seraphim did. Holy, holy. This confession of praise is structured in three groups of three. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. And the first triad declares that God is holy. He's radically different from us. He's utterly pure. He's utterly devoted to his own glory. As one scholar put it, holiness is glory concealed. Glory is holiness. That second triad gives us several biblical names of God all put together. Lord, God, Almighty. He's the one who's revealed himself as the God who is and made a covenant with his people. He's the one who is sovereign over every bit of his creation. And then the third triad declares that God is eternal and unchangeable. As creatures, our lives have a start date and an end date. We began and we will end. God alone simply is. In verse 8, John bends the rules of Greek grammar when he says, Who was? He matches up parts of the language that don't normally go together in order to indicate that God always was. Just like he always is. Just like he always is. Will be. There never was a time when God didn't exist and attained into being. He always infinitely possesses fullness of life in himself. That's why he's worthy of worship. And so we can humble ourselves before him. We can bow before him. We should be aware of ways we've fallen short of him and confess our sins to him, like we will do in a moment when we come to the Lord's Supper. Recognize the ways in which you fall short of God's glory and confess all those. John's vision is beginning to move us outward in concentric circles. The throne itself is the center. We see four living creatures around the throne. And then this declaration of praise shows us their right response to the one who's at the very center of all things. But now in verses 9 to 11, we'll move one rung further out. The concentric circles start to expand outward. Verse 9 to 11. Whatever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. 
The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They pass their crowns before the throne and sing. O Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. In response to the living creatures' worship, now the elders' worship. They're passing down their crowns so that their submission to God's supremacy. The crown is a symbol of authority, and it's almost as if the only reason they have that authority in the first place is to learn and surrender before God's these elders worship God, and they give us the reason why in verse 11. You are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power because you have created all things. God is the absolute, unaided source of all things. And we just rearrange existing raw materials. All of it came from Him. God's word of creation is more like his Mozart invented sounds in order to then compose music. God didn't just paint the painting. Instead, he invented color and paper and brushes and paint and the eyes that could see it. The God's word of creation is crucial for rightly understanding who God is and rightly responding to him. So many intellectual struggles that people have whether when they're exploring Christianity and trying to make sense of it, or as believers. So many intellectual struggles and challenges can be resolved by rightly understanding and appealing to God's work as creator. Here's just three quick ones. You can think of more and discuss them with each other over the Three intellectual challenges that our creation sets lay on. Number one, what about all the miracles in the Old Testament? There's some weird ones. Making access floats, uh, making oil to not run out from being poured out in the jar over and over again. Do those things really happen? Well, God created all things, and He keeps all things in existence. It's part of the conception here. Everything continues to exist by His will and power. It's not like He just said it's spinning and not running on its own. But it's no trouble for Him to change some tiny little piece of how creation works for a little while. Second question, what about Jesus' resurrection? Is that just a myth or a delusion or wishful thinking? The God who is himself life and who gives life to all, who is the only giver and source of life, he is able to effortlessly give life when it's been taken. He's even able to give a whole new kind of life if that you lost. The third question, how can the Bible be both God's words and human words? Isn't that a contradiction? Not at all. We're only able to speak at all because God enables our speech. God gives breath. God gives minds to understand. It certainly is a special work for God to enable human authors to speak His very words. But it's a special version of a word. He's always already doing. What makes worship to life? We see from this passage is God Himself. He's infinitely delightful and infinitely worthy of our worship. We worship God because of who He is, what He alone can do, 
and would heal and rest up for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. God Himself is infinite, absolute good, and He deserves our unlimited, absolute devotion. Do you ever get bored during corporate worship? Sometimes there could be a particular reason for that boy. Things go on for a long time. Maybe, you know, there's stuff happening around. There's, there's a baby crying really loud and it's hard to ignore. And your mind kind of drifts off after. There can be understandable reasons to go bored during corporate worship. But one reason could be it's not bored with God. What makes worshiping God delightful is God Himself. And if you're getting bored with God, Dangerous warnings on the how your soul may be doing. Much of the state of Arizona is mountain studded desert. It's wide open blankets. Arizona has only two major urban sprawls, Phoenix and Tucson. Because of that, Arizona hosts more than 30 observatories. When scientists build these enormous telescopes and point them at the sky, they take advantage of all that wide-open, dark night sky to study the heavens. Some of these scientists in Arizona have banded together to form what they've called the International Dark Sky Association. They work to raise awareness about light pollution. They advocate for free light that only shines down, not up, so less light reflects and leaves the sky at night. Those astronomers want to see what's really up there. And they want other people to be able to see it. Every faithful church is a dark sky association. When we gather each Sunday for corporate worship, we're helping each other bring off the artificial light of this world's false promises and empty hopes. We're helping each other to turn off the deceitful appeals of sin by how we hear God's word, listen to a priest, by how we pray together, by how we sing. We are trying to blink off all the harmful artificial lights that are blinding our sight of God. All of us who gather as believers in Jesus in those churches, every time we come together, we want to see who's really up. And we want others to see them too. That is why we gather. What John saw in this vision was not only a heavenly worship service, but also a heavenly drama. If you want a really easy way to understand into these two chapters in two phrases, chapter 4, heavenly worship service, chapter 5, heavenly drama, 3.3, supreme over the whole story. In order to see this universe rightly and see yourself rightly, you need to see the one who is supreme over the whole story. We see this drama begin to play out in chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Look first at verses 1 and 2. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne, his scroll was writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw my angel proclaiming with a loud voice, 
Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This scroll in God's right hand represents His purposes for all of history. It culminated in salvation and judgment on the last day. You can picture a scroll rolled up, standing sideways, with seals on different rings in the scroll. If you open a portion of it, the scroll progressively reveals context. So the question in verse 2 is simply this. Who can execute God's purposes for the rest of history? Who has the authority to take God's plans from God's hand and carry out God's will for God's creation? Could an angel do it? Could you do it? Could any human being do it? Who is worthy of such a task? Verse 4. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. I wept and wept. Because no one is found worthy to open the scroll or even to look at it. Don't leave it here. It's serious. It's brave. It's wavy. That's why it's repeated. It's not like if you took home an Ikea table and no one was able to open the instructions. That's a little disappointing. It's a little inconvenient. Oh, well, we won't do this. Why is God? Weeping. God is weeping because it looks like all of creation is called in futility, in pain, in injustice. John weeps to voice the lament of all creation, which is stalled in sin, in suffering. If no one is found who can take this scroll, does that mean the world is going to be stuck like this forever? That's why John's coming. John's tears represent all the tears that God will one day wipe away. John's about to learn how. But before we move on to the solution, one more word about the problem. A legitimate response to creation's brokenness is lament. That's why we corporately pray prayers of lament from time to time. We do in our congregations, and many do here. There are many hardships in this world where the most fitting response is to weep. That's the only thing you can do, that's the only good thing to do. It's weep. Lament tells the truth about this world's brokenness and futility. Lament tells the truth about what's wrong with this world. And now the question is who can set this world? Right, for the first Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Here Jesus is described with two messianic titles from the Old Testament. The lion from the tribe of Judah is from Genesis 49. And we've heard it elaborated in, in Isaiah 11 read earlier in terms of Jesus being the root shooting forth from Jesse. And then that, that phrase, the root of David, is there from Isaiah 11. So, line of the tribe of Judah, root of Jesse, or shoot from Jesse from David in Isaiah 11. Both of them his kingly lineage. Lion then teaches us to expect someone ferocious, triumphant, conquering, victorious. He's won a victory. Does that victory? It's where they take the scroll. 
does it John hears, but now for what he sees. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne, and the four living creatures among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, and are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. John hears about a lion and sees a lamb. Now, of course, who he hears of and who he sees are one and the same, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we've even confessed in the formula of Chalcedon. The, the lion is the lamb, the lamb is the lion, but what John hears sets up categories of Old Testament expectation. What John sees shows us how Jesus fulfilled those promises. He did win a victory. He did triumph over the spiritual forces of evil, but he did it by dying. He did it as a lamb that was slaughtered. He won his victory on the cross. He triumphed over Satan by dying, by being defeated. He conquered by being killed. That unexpected, upside-down victory is the pattern for the entire Christian life. That's one of the key themes of the book of Revelation. It's the pattern for how Christians triumph too. We don't conquer opposition with fleshly power, but by the truth. Even martyrdom is not defeat, but victory. Because faithful witness in death is a victory for the truth. When verse 6 tells us that John saw one like a slaughtered lamb, I think the basic point is that Jesus, even in his exalted, glorified state, still bears the marks of his crucifixion. His seven horns are a symbol of divine power, his seven eyes are a symbol of divine knowledge, and together identified as the seven souled spirit. The Holy Spirit is not only the Spirit of God, but also the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 7, John sees this slaughtered lamb take the scroll. This is a figurative reference to Christ's exaltation to heaven. After he died on the cross for our sins and rose again, he ascended into heaven. He claimed his rightful place at God's right hand, and by doing that, he claimed sovereignty over all creation. The scroll of history rests secure in the hands pierced in your That's what verses 6 and 7 are proclaiming to us. So in one sense, Revelation 4 tells us what's always the case in heaven. Revelation 5 tells us what became the case when Christ entered, having died and risen again for us. Because Jesus triumphed over death by death, Worthy to take the scroll of history in He will win in the end, and all who trust in him will win with him. And if you want proof of that, guarantee of that, demonstration of that, look to the cross where Jesus triumphed over our sin by his death. In order to see this world as it really is, you need to see the one who is supreme of the whole story. To know where this whole universe is headed, look to the cross. You can only know where this whole broken and battered world is finally going by knowing the one who is supreme over it and is dying to redeem it. My wife, Christian, and I like to watch detective mystery stories, you know, TV series, 
first crime as the resolution. Maybe in one series, season, or multiple ones. Why don't we start a new one? Kristen gets on the internet and looks up the very end of the whole thing. We've been married for 16 years, and I cannot comprehend this behavior. It's, it makes no more sense to me the longer it goes on. I, I think it has something to do with curbing everyone's relationships, taking it easy, not so too like caught out or, you know, caught off guard. But I'm like, don't tell me anything. No spoilers. I don't even want to see the look on her face when a new character comes in. Because, you know, maybe this is the person who's going to tragically die right away. Don't say a word. But, but when, I, when I questioned her about this bizarre behavior, she was very sharp upon She says, Christians know the end of the story. I need to be that consistent. <laughs> <laughs> In your life, if you haven't already, you will face plot twists, setbacks, hardships, maybe even horrors that are far greater than any plot twist in any TV show. that you can persevere through them joyfully. Confidence with love for God and others flowing out of you in the midst of horrible circumstances. The way you can do that is by knowing the end of the story and by knowing the one who's supreme over the whole story. One last question we have to answer that our text brings to There is a good Savior who's sovereign over this whole story. There is a good end coming to the story. But how does that become the good for you? Point four. Savior of things. No reality of it truly is. You need to fix your eyes on the one, the only one, who is the Savior of sinners. We see Jesus' saving work celebrated in verse 8, 14 of chapter 5. The first of verse states that. When he took control, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense before the prayers of the saints. And it sang a new song: "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe, language, and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth." You might not have noticed this, but in the two previous sections in chapter 4 that are marked off as poetry, what's recorded is what the elders and living creatures said, what they spoke. No one yet has sung until now. Just like the psalm says, they sing a new song because they're celebrating the new work that Christ has accomplished by his death and resurrection. They're celebrating how the Lamb has ransomed, redeemed, and reinstated people from every tribe and language and nation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. 
their deliberately graphic choice of a verb, slaughter, is pointing to Jesus as being the perfect sacrificial lamb. He was killed just like those sacrificial animals were throughout the Old Testament because our sin has forfeited our lives. The only way to pay for sin is death. Our lives are forfeited before God because of our sin against Him. And when I say our, I mean that absolutely universally. Every single human being except Jesus is born with a sinful nature. And it confirms that by how we act. What we deserve from God, despite our frequent protest of arguing with God and blaming Him for why our lives are going the way they are and arguing with Him about why He hasn't given us what we want, and what we deserve from God is condemnation. The only thing we deserve is death. And that graphic verb, slaughter, shows us that Jesus died. The death we deserve to die. He did so as a sacrifice. He did so to pay the full penalty for our sin. That word, purchase, shows us the effect of what Jesus did by his death. He paid the full price to obtain all of these people for God. The debt he paid by bearing God's wrath on the cross is the complete purchase price for him to become the full owner of all the redeemed from every tribe and language and nation. The point is this. The only way to get back into a right relationship with God is to trust in Jesus because of the sacrifice he has made for you. The only way that this story can become good news for you is by turning from sin and trusting him. If you've never done that, I would urge you, I would exhort you to do that today. Jesus' story didn't stop with his death. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. As we saw, he ascended to God's right hand and installed in power. And now what he's doing all those who believe is reinstating us in the proper relationship to creation that God meant for us to have all along. Look at our friends. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. All those who Jesus redeems, he restores to a right relationship with God and creation. And one day, what that will look like is perfect peace, perfect goodness, perfect joy, nothing out of place in all of God's. The way in the only way that we can do it is to turn from sin and trust in Christ. And that we need to continue to celebrate Christ's saving work in verses 11 to 14. But I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also the living creatures and the elders. They remember the sound of thousands, plus thousands and thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slaughtered. Receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the land forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Notice that in these verses, the heavenly and earthly creatures. Worship Jesus. And worship him in the same terms as they worship God in chapter 4. They use the same praise song to worship Jesus as they do to worship God the Father. Not only that, in the final confession in verse 13, it brings together the one seated on the throne and the Lamb as the fitting object of praise. 
This is not the worship of two gods, but the praise of the one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The worship of Jesus is decisive evidence of his divinity. And here again, we see the circles of praise expand outward. It started with the elders around the throne, then it continues with an enormous number of angels all around the throne, and then it echoes all the way out to every creature in the universe joining in the prayers. It's as if Jesus' saving work of purchasing a people for dinner is a pebble dropped into the still surface of the universe. And it echoes in friends, don't stop expanding. Until it encompasses This vision collapses the present and the future into one scene. At present, heavenly beings do recognize Christ's supremacy. But we don't yet hear this acknowledgement from every creature in all of the universe. I think God's vision is a little bit like a symbolic version of what Paul says in Philippians 2. Verses 10 and 11, that one day at the end of history, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of God the Father. This doesn't mean that every person will be saved, but it does mean that every person will acknowledge Christ's supremacy. One way or another. The Savior of sinners will one day be supreme over everyone. Everywhere. On that day, no opposition, no humanly created artificial life will block the sight of the sun's glory. So this passage leaves us with an invitation and with a challenge. Hold out a kind of two ways to live. Will you live by only what you can see down here below? The way the world looks now, the way the world works now, the human artificial lights that shine light on us down here. Or will you break those off? And look up to the thing. And live by what you see there. By the one you see there. It's delightfully different. It's worthy of worship. It's supreme over the whole thing. And it's the Savior of sinners. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this glorious revelation of the way things are in heaven now and the way they will one day be in our creation. Father, we pray that you grant us to live by what you've shown us to do. We pray in Jesus' name.